The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear from the word of the Lord from Mark 15, 42 through 47. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. If you would open up your Bibles, we are in Mark chapter 15. If I could find it, I've got too many tabs here. There we go. Uh, We are... Starting in verse 42, Um, in our study less than 24 hours ago, Jesus was reclining at table. Now, we've been studying this over several weeks, so it's, it's easy for us to forget that this is one day in the life of Jesus that we've been studying for these past three or four weeks. In less than 24 hours ago, where we are in our text, Jesus was reclining with some of his favorite people, right? His apostles, his disciples were around him. They were reclining at table. They were eating together, partaking of what we now call, it was the Passover meal, but what we now call the Last Supper. They were drinking wine. They were eating. They were having, they were really enjoying the company and enjoying the grace that God had given them in that moment. But since that peaceful moment, less than 24 hours ago, Jesus' life has been a flurry of pain, torment, and turmoil. Jesus has agonized in prayer to the point where he was, his capillaries literally burst and he was sweating blood. He was betrayed by one of his followers, Judas, with a kiss. He was arrested and illegally tried at night and convicted by the Sanhedrin and then carried off to Pilate and then he was scourged, which is Uh, beaten to an inch of his life with a whip that had um, steel and glass and bone embedded into it, that when it hit him, it connected into his flesh and it would rip his flesh from his body, exposing his bones, exposing his organs. He was mocked. They pointed their finger. They put a crown of thorns on him. They beat him and spit on him and they mocked him. And then he was crucified. And we saw last week that The greatest pain of all was he was forsaken by God. God the Father had turned his back or turned his face away from the Son. And by 3 p.m. on Friday, Jesus hung dead on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God who John calls the word of life, according to our text today, is now a corpse. It's striking that he uses that kind of word, that kind of language to describe Jesus the word of life. He's now a corpse. Let that sink in. And what we're going to learn today is that somehow, kind of unimaginably, this corpse changed 
the world. And in this moment we see, right after his death, he's dead and now this corpse immediately begins changing the world. It's shocking. We see that right away, uh, when, when people look at this dead body of Jesus, somehow he begins uniting people who would normally have nothing to do with each other. Now, I think that's really important for us, especially at this moment in our culture where we are so deeply divided. It's hard for us, some of us, well, maybe, to be, if, you have, if, you, if your Facebook feed is like friends at work, friends from school, friends from church, family, then you probably understand what I'm talking about. Now, if you have, you know, if you've got a Facebook feed that's only like church people or only like work people, then maybe they're all, most of their opinions are the same. But if you're like mine and you've got a lot of different people and a lot of different friends out there, you see how deeply divided we are as a culture. Politically, racially, socioeconomically, and of course, religiously. We are deeply divided as a country and as a people. And what our text, what we're going to see this morning, what's so surprising is that people, kind of who Jesus could not unite in this life, in his life while he was living, he couldn't bring them together. It was like oil and water. Somehow in his death, they became united. Somehow, people who could never really get along, and they were from totally different ends of the spectrum, you know, politically, morally, religiously, somehow in his death, somehow they became united around this corpse, the corpse of Jesus. And we saw the first instance of that last week with the Roman centurion, if you remember. A Roman centurion, this man was a pagan. That means he's polytheistic. What does that mean? It means he worshiped any god that could get him ahead. He, was, he had multiple gods. Any god that would serve his needs, he was down with that god. And he believed, well, and, and by trade, this man, this Roman centurion, he, he had worked himself up from, you know, entry level in the, in the Roman guard. He'd worked himself up to become the captain of the guard, this Roman centurion. By trade, he was a professional killer. That's what he did for a job. He had crucified hundreds of people, if not thousands, before this moment where he crucified Jesus. This man was used to death. Just another day at the office. Another crucified, kill, another crucified uh, murderer, another insurrectionist, put to death under the Roman boot, another day at the office. And yet, yet last week we saw that this Roman who had nothing to do with the Jewish religion, no understanding of the coming Messiah, no understanding of the Old Testament. When Jesus dies on the cross and he looks into the face of the corpse of the Son of God, he pronounces the first man in the whole gospel according to Mark. The first man to ever say, truly this was the Son of God, was a Roman pagan centurion. Right? And I can imagine as he pronounces, truly this man was the son of God, all of the guys that work for him kind of do a double take. We just killed this weakling. What are you talking about? But God had done something in his heart and had radically changed him and radically saved him. This Roman centurion is converted. 
and becomes a follower of Jesus. Now, listen, many people think that Christianity is about good people gathering together and rejoicing in their goodness. Man, it's so great that we're not like the rest of the world. It's so great that we're not like those people on that new station or, or those pe- people from that part of town. It's so great that we've got our act together. Many people think Christianity is like that. Now I hear people tell me all the time, Justin, when I get my life together, when, when I settle down, then I'm going to start coming to church. Or, Justin, I can't go to church. If I walk through those doors, God might strike me dead. You don't want me to come to your church. I hear these kind of statements all the time. If that's how you think, you you need to look at the Roman centurion. He has just killed the Son of God. And as he looks into the face of the corpse of Jesus... He doesn't see his own condemnation. He doesn't say, I could never come close. What have I done? He sees grace. He sees love. He sees mercy. And he gets cut to the heart. There's something inside him that changes supernaturally, radically, when he sees the face of Jesus dead. And he pronounces, truly, this man was the Son of God. See, what that tells us is no matter what you've done, no matter how far from God you think you are, no matter how you've been living, Jesus died for you and you can come to him and receive grace. His own murderer received grace. You can be made right with God through Jesus and be given the power to change. This God gives you this new life. It's a gift that comes in you and then you respond and then you live from this new life. You have this new way of living, this new power to live a new life. He can change you deep in your heart and then empower you to change the way you're living. The centurion is proof for all of us who've run and walked away from God that no one is too far from God to be brought back into a close relationship with him. It's great news. We talked about it last week. But like I said, kind of, if you've read my, Jonah, my book on Jonah that's in the back, there's more than one way to run from God. There's one, more than one way to avoid Jesus as your king and to live our lives on our own and do what we want and live how we want on our own terms. The centurion shows us the first way. This is kind of the normal way. We, we want to live our own life and make our own rules and do what we want to do. And, and so we run from Jesus and it's kind of the pagan way the immoral way, the way of rebellion. Do your own thing, be your own God, make your own rules, live however you want. But the other way to run from Jesus, the other way to run from him and maybe not even know you're running from him, to avoid really coming under his kingship and under his authority of Jesus is to try to be such a good person that you don't need him. See, this is the covert way. This is kind of the carbon monoxide of sin. You try to be such a good person that you really just don't need him. I'm going to spend some time later talking about uh, one of my favorite authors. And in one of her short stories, she has this character who says, she says this about him. There was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that to avoid, the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. It's from Flannery O'Connor. 
There was this wordless conviction in him that I don't want anything from Jesus. I don't want him. So I'll avoid sin. And if I can avoid sin, I don't really need Jesus. I don't need a savior. If you can live your life in such a good way that you can avoid coming to him and asking for grace, you will never feel like you are in his debt. You can still remain your own person and he can't tell you what to do or tell you how to live. There's one person running for political office today that calls himself a Christian and he says he's never once asked God for forgiveness. Hmm. He doesn't understand what Christianity is. See, this way of avoiding Jesus, you can put a label on it all you want, but it's the way of morality and it's the way of religion. And it says, I'm a good person, so God likes me and he should bless me. And what you should see when you look at our world is that these two types of people are at complete odds with each other. It's always really easy to see it during political season, right? Just listen how often the labels liberals and evangelicals get thrown around in the news during election season and they're almost always antagonistic to each other. They just don't get along. Well, it was the same in Jesus' day. We've seen over the past year and a half as we studied Mark that the religious leaders didn't like Jesus because he associated with people who they considered were immoral people. Jesus ate with prostitutes and he drank wine with tax collectors and the moral Jewish leaders hated him for it. They looked at Jesus and they said, he's a glutton and a drunkard. They labeled Jesus as a liberal. And they were so convinced of their own moral goodness that they saw Jesus as an enemy and they used their power to kill him. The Jewish court, which is the highest court for the Jewish people, they were called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are the ones who tried him and convicted him and dragged him to Pilate to have him crucified. But now look at this. As the corpse of Jesus hangs lifeless on the cross, something radical happens. Not only does a Roman centurion get converted, but so does a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And this might, maybe this should be more shocking to us than the Roman centurion. Now, many of us, we want to clap and applaud when the, when, you know, when the drug addict walks the aisle and gives their life to Christ or the prostitute walks and gives their life to Christ. Thank God he can change somebody so far from Jesus. Amen. But I think what's more shocking is when a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin gets converted. When somebody who's grown up in church all their life and heard all the Jesus stories and all of a sudden one moment they go, I have never understood my deep need for Christ. I've never understood how complicit I've been in the death of Christ, how my good deeds stink in the nostrils of God, how all my morality has been a way for me to avoid the grace of God. I think that's more shocking most of the time. And that's what we're going to see today, this member of the Sanhedrin. However you want to say it, he gets born again, he gets converted, he gets regenerated, he's given a new heart, he gets saved. That's what we're going to take a look at. Let's go to verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, okay? So he's a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin who had just voted to have Jesus killed. So 
at the best, Joseph either was giving his yes to condemn Jesus or he was silent and he refused to stand up. He just sat in the background. Who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Now the other gospel writers say this, he was secretly a follower of Jesus. He was secret. So Joseph of Arimathea was a guy who kept his distance from Jesus, but he watched him perform miracles. He heard his teaching. He kind of heard the gospel. If you remember, Nicodemus came at night. Joseph of Arimathea could very well have been with him when he come, comes at night. And Jesus says this, we, you must be born again. If you want to enter my kingdom, you must be born again. Now that's radical. I'm, an, I'm a moral person. I'm wealthy. I'm well-respected. Born again, uh, I'm going to keep my distance here. I'm just going to watch, right? He's a man who's kept his distance. He hasn't risked much for Jesus. Let's keep reading. He took courage. We'll talk about that in a minute. He took courage, and he goes to Pilate, and he asks for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And so... Why is Pilate surprised? It usually took days or weeks for a person to die on the cross. And the Romans usually left the bodies hanging long enough for their flesh to rot and the birds to come eat them. This would strike fear in the hearts of all who saw them. But today is the day of after Passover, or it's the day before Passover, day after Passover, day before the Sabbath, thank you, sorry, and so they, they don't want this body to hang there overnight because it will literally, you know, a body hanging on the cross is a curse and it would pollute the whole ground, okay? It would pollute the whole land before the Sabbath. So, so Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and says, can I take this body down? Pilate says, what do you mean take the body down? How could he be dead? It's, it's only been a few hours. He's only been hanging for three hours. So what does he do? He calls the centurion. He calls the chief executioner before him to ask, is this guy really dead? Could he really be dead after three hours? And the centurion comes. Pilate was surprised, verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Jesus is a corpse. What does that mean? That means his spirit and his soul have vacated his body. He hangs limp on the cross, his head hangs forward, his heart no longer beats, his blood is draining out of his body through the force of gravity alone. His blood is running down the cross and soaking the earth, the dirt, and the rocks below. And then Joseph says, let me have the body. Now think about this. Jesus is mangled. His flesh has been ripped from his body. He's been beaten to to an inch of his life. He's been nailed through his hands or wrists and his feet. He's been stabbed in his side. He's a bloody mess. And this respected member of the Jewish Sanhedrin says, let me have his body. 
And he goes and he begins the process of taking this body, this corpse, down off the cross. And then in Jesus' day, the, the dead were, bur- were buried in tombs. Now, a tomb would have, you see it all, you know, there's a lot of different ways tombs can be built. But most of the common ones were, would have had about a two-foot opening, a very small opening. And you'd kind of crawl through or crouch down and go through, and then it'd open up into a bigger room. And then it was all stone etched into the side of a cliff, and then there would be a table etched into the stone. And they didn't embalm the dead like Egyptians did, did or like we do today. They would, lay the, they would prepare the body for burial and wrap, clean it and wrap it and put spices and, and, and uh, anoint it with perfume. Jesus was already anointed, if you remember earlier. And they would lay this body on this stone tablet and the body would decompose. And then as the body would decompose, the family members would come back a year later, or however long later, and they would gather the bones and they would put the bones in a separate little kind of stone box inside the tomb. And so the, all the family members ha, you know, kind of would have their own little box and then this, the table was reserved for the person, the, the, the most recent person who had died. And so Joseph of Arimathea has his, he's wealthy. He has his own tomb prepared. He has his own family tomb prepared. And he gifts this to Jesus. He takes the body of Jesus down and he brings it and he puts it in his own tomb and he lays it out. And then they put, they roll this large stone in front of it and seal it. Now I want, I want, you, I want us to think about what's going on right now. My, this is my premise. The, the, basically, the same thing that happened to the Roman centurion has happened to Joseph of Arimathea. The irreligious and the religious man, the same thing has happened to them. Joseph of Arimathea, Jewish, monotheistic. There's only one God, and that's the Jewish God. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's wealthy. He has everything he needs. He's a well-respected member of the community. Right? He's rich. He's powerful. He has a good reputation. And let me just let this said, I think he has everything that we want. I think everything you're working for in life right now, Joseph of Arimathea already has it. He has the money. He has the prestige. He has the good job. He's got the, uh, you know, the accolades of people. People look at this man and they say, dang, that's a good man. And yet this man in this moment, risks it all. And this has convicted me this week. See, for me personally, there was a time in my life, the last few years, where I've had to lay it all out there and I've had to risk it all to plant this church and we risked financial, we used all of our savings to start this church and we, we risked it all and then God has blessed us year after year after year and you know what, now I find myself, I'm kind of comfortable. Church pays me a nice salary and my family's healthy and we live in a nice house and I find myself comfortable. And, and, I, and I look at this Jewish guy and I, I'm thinking, what would cause him reaching the status, reaching all this comfort, getting the American dream in Jewish society, what would cause him to risk it? See, listen, Jesus is an insurrectionist. The Jewish Sanhedrin has just said, 
We want him dead. He's a part of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He goes to Pilate and goes, can I have his body? Pilate could easily have said, the insurrectionist, you die with him. Prepare another cross. That's what should have happened. Not only that, what this, this would, all of his brothers and sisters in the Sanhedrin, they would have ridiculed him. They would have pushed him out. They would have voted him out. They would have got him out of Sanhedrin. He would have lost his prestige. Not only that, he risked his financial, financial fortune. He buys, the, he buys all the supplies to, to clean the body of Jesus and wrap the body of Jesus. He gives up his own tomb. Tombs can't be cheap. He risks his finances for Jesus. And not only that, think about, you know what, what's interesting, and we're going to talk about this a little bit next week. Over the last three weeks, we've, I haven't mentioned them, but the women have been consistent. <laughs> All the men are running, right, like mice when you turn the lights on, and the women are consistent. Week after week, and the women were watching, and the women followed closely behind him, and the women were there at the cross. All the men are gone, and the women are at the tomb, Okay? This has been a consistent theme. Now, women were, to say they were second-class citizens in this society would be an understatement, okay? Their record wasn't even admissible in court, right? You had to have, I mean, you had to have, well, let's, I just, I'm going to leave it at that. They were dismissed. And yet, and, and basically, so think about this. The, the cleaning of the body, the embalming of the body was a woman's job in this day and age, okay? It was a servant's job. And yet Joseph of Arimathea does it himself while women watch. Now this shows a radical change in his heart because a cultural norm would have went, okay, I'll pay it. Ladies, get his body down and clean it and then put him in my tomb. And that would still have been risking money. That still would have been risking his, his, you know, his political affiliation, his religious affiliation, his, 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 um, reputation. That would have been risking all of that, but that's not what he does. He reverses roles, and while the women watch, he goes and he takes the body down from the cross. And this is a picture that's a couple hundred years old, a painting of how more than likely they would lower his body from the cross. Using that linen shroud, they would climb it, they would take the nails out, and they would lower him down. But think about this. Think about how nasty that is. Think about a corpse. I mean, the, the, the text calls the Son of God a corpse. And he's bloody and he's mangled. And Joseph of Arimathea, a respected Jewish man who would become ritually and ceremonially unclean by touching this body going into the Sabbath, risks it all and goes himself, instead of ordering the servants or the women to do it, and he takes down this bloody, broken body himself. What would cause a man to do this? What would cause you to risk your finances, your financial security? Now, I know some of us, we give financially, and we, you know, Maybe we give it some to the homeless guy on the street or maybe we give a little bit to the church, but we usually give until it's just, you know, we have that buffer zone. We never get into the buffer zone. Whether it be the $1,000 in your bank account or, or whether it be $10,000 in your bank account, whatever you feel is comfortable for you, you'll give, but you never get into the buffer zone. You don't want to be uncomfortable, right? That's how we work most of the time. What would cause this man to risk it all? 
Reputation, finances, his group, his Sanhedrin, what would cause him? There's only one thing that would cause him to risk it all like this, and that's if God himself saved him, if God gave him a new heart, if this man became a new man internally. And so we see two men at the cross, different ends of the political spectrum, different ends of the religious spectrum, moralistic, immoral. Both of them look at the corpse. When Jesus was alive, they said, crucify him. When Jesus was alive, they mocked him. Or at very best, Joseph of Marathia stayed quiet, wasn't really convinced, wasn't really sure. But when they see the corpse, when they look into the lifeless eyes of Jesus, they're converted. Now, what's going on here? And this is, I don't think any of us understand grace. None of us understand grace until we've experienced a great trauma. And I think what we see here in this text is two people, both get converted, both get new hearts, but it takes a great trauma to bring them together. Now, this week, I have a good friend whose sister is battling cancer, and they've only given her a few days to live. Uh, I got to sit in the room with another person who was battling cancer, and uh, she's only been given hours or days to live. And just get reminded of how traumatic our lives in this world are, how short they can be. And one of the, and I, I, I think, you know, why is there evil? Why is there, we, we could talk about that. Why do bad things happen? All of these things we can talk about. We all need, we do need to talk about them. But a person who understood trauma, a person who understood the violence of grace was this woman, Flannery O'Connor. She was an author. She was, went to the University of Iowa, taught at the University of Iowa. Um, she's been dead now for many years. But for her, she understood the violence of grace. And so her, her writing was very traumatic. Her writing was very violent. She saw grace as a violent thing, not as a solemn, you know, walk down the aisle or a hushed prayer alone on your knees, but she saw it as a bullet. She saw grace as a book to the face, as a suicide. This is what she said in her own words, her purpose for writing fiction in the way that she did. She said this, my audience are the people who think God is dead. To the heart of hearing you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. So all of her figures are big and they're kind of out there and they shock you and you read it and you literally finish and you're like, what did I just read? And for all of you, you're like, what, what does she read? If you were at Easter here last year, I, re- I read lo- a large chunk of one of her stories, uh, of the story called Revelation. Um, but there's another book, it's, or a little short story, and it's called, uh, and a good man is hard to find. This moment of grace, this violent nature of grace when grace shows up, it arrives when a notorious convict points his gun at a grandma. And you're kind of like, what am I reading? And this grandma is very self-righteous. This grandma is very much like, I'm a good person and you're a bad person and you really need to, you know, you, you should really be a better person. She spent the majority of the story picking at others while kind of basking in her own goodness. And then 
while this gun is pointed at her, she has this moment of clarity. She looks at the criminal and she's reminded of her own son. She realizes that the two men aren't so different. She stops talking finally. And her fancy hat falls to the ground. And she sees that she isn't so different from the murderer either. Her epiphany ends abruptly with three bullets to the chest. This is what the, mis- the bad guys called the misfit in the story. This is what the misfit says. She would have been a good woman if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. What's he saying? He's saying she was religious, she was cold, she thought she was better than everybody else. But right before I shot her, I think she understood grace. In the story I shared last Easter, the one called Revelation, the violence of grace shows up uh, as this, as if you remember the book, Human Development, hits this religious woman in the face as she's waiting in a waiting room. And she's pointing out everybody, oh God, I thank, thank God I'm not like that person. Thank God I'm not like, I thank God that he made me me. And this book hits her in the face and this young girl jumps across and she's throttling her with her hands and she calls her, you old warthog from hell. And this moment like shocks this old woman and she goes home and she's <laughs> cleaning up after her hogs actually. And she's going, who is that woman to call me an old warthog from hell? Old warthog from hell. And she kind of turns her eyes to God and says, you think I'm a warthog from hell? And in this moment, she has this epiphany, this vision, where she sees the heavens kind of open and all the people that she didn't like in this life, all the people that she knew she was better than, the ones who didn't have the good sense and they couldn't balance a checkbook and they couldn't you know, do the good things and have a good society. She saw all those people that she didn't like ahead of her on their way to heaven. And she was in the very back. It's funny because they're all singing hallelujah and all these folks are singing off key. Of course, she's singing on key. But she sees herself in the very back of this heavenly procession. What's that about? It's all about the radical nature of grace. That grace doesn't come cute. It doesn't come wrapped in a nice package. It comes in the corpse, the bloody, crucified, beaten corpse of Christ. It says that murderers and moralizers are all the same. They're all sinners in need of grace. Whether it's been a lie or the crucifixion of the Son of God, we all stand equally condemned under the judgment seat of God. And the only way to be made right with God is through the resurrection and death of Jesus Christ. And that's grace. His death gets counted as our own. His new life gets counted as our own. We all fall short of being good enough to earn our way into heaven and back into a relationship with God. And therefore, we all need to be saved by the one who died for us, who was without sin. And when you look at the cross, when you gaze upon the corpse of Jesus, and that revelation hits you like a bullet, you realize, I'm not good enough. I'm a sinner. I am guilty, and there's no hope for me outside the grace of Jesus. 
And what does that do? Well, the misfit knew when his gun pointed on the woman right before she died that it changed her for a moment. He says, she'd have been a good woman if I could have shot her every moment minute of her life. Well, that's what the death of resurrection of Jesus does to us. See, with a Christian, we walk around with the death in our bodies. We walk around with the resurrection in our bodies. There's someone kind of putting us to death every moment of our life, reminding us you're a sinner, but you've been saved by grace. And that radical nature of grace that God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to live a perfect life and die a substitutionary death so that you could have this new life in Christ, that's kind of like getting shot every moment of your life and it changes you radically from the inside. Think about this. Now, this, this part is a little bit hypothetical because we don't know exactly what happened to these two guys afterwards. I wish we did. But the Roman centurion and Joseph of Arimathea both get radically changed by the cross and after this moment, they're now brothers. See, when a person gets changed by Jesus and regenerated or born again, they are now adopted into the family of God and they become a part of the body of Christ. That means these two men from totally different cultures and backgrounds, the pagan and the perfectionist, the rebel and the rule follower would have both been members in the same church, possibly the same missional community. Think about that. The liberal and the conservative breaking bread together in each other's homes, following Jesus together, worshiping God together, making disciples together. They would no doubt share their stories together. The centurion saying, man, I threw myself into wild living. I never denied myself anything under the sun. Never denied myself sex or pleasure or violence. I worked hard and progressed in my career, never knowing that I would eventually kill the Son of God. But when I looked into the face of the corpse of Jesus, he changed me in that moment forever. And Joseph would say, oh man, I threw myself into religion and my morality I was a good person. I was a good man. I loved my family. I was devout and hardworking. I saw all of my riches in this life as proof that God had blessed me, never dreaming that one day I would stay silent as my fellow members of the Sanhedrin manipulated the system to kill the Son of God. But when I saw his dead face, I was changed forever. See, only the gospel of Jesus, only the cross of Christ has the power to change these two different types of people and bring them together to live as a new family. Have you experienced this kind of change in your life? Have you felt the violent explosion of grace like a bullet in your life? Think about Joseph of Arimathea again. Think about what he risked. Do you have that kind of 
interchange, that kind of strength of character to will, willing to lay it all, willing to risk it all for the sake of Jesus? Do your colleagues at work know that you're a disciple of Jesus? Not just a good man, not just a good woman, not just ethical, not just moralistic. Do they know you're a disciple of Jesus who's been radically changed by grace? Do the people you work out with at the gym know it? Your golfing buddies? Do they know it? Have you risked your reputation? Have you laid it out there? If not, I, I would say, I don't think, if not, you don't believe the gospel. Now, I, I, I'm not saying you're an unbeliever. You might be. Maybe I could say you don't believe the gospel enough. Have you really looked into the face of the Son of God dead or laid out on a tomb? There to decompose. What shocks me? These two men don't know about the resurrection yet. Paul says that it's our faith is useless without the resurrection. And yet something, these two men radically change by looking at the dead Son of God. If you haven't been freed up from your love of money from your love of self, from your love of reputation, if you haven't been freed up to risk those things, then I want to say, you need to take another look in the face of the corpse of Jesus and see, he did this for me. When you believe the gospel, you take risks. You are willing to risk your finances. You give sacrificially. You are willing to risk your reputation to share your faith with a neighbor or a coworker. You're willing to risk your personal comfort to be a part of a messy community filled with people who are far different from you. We see all this from Joseph. Willing to risk it all. I pray that in this moment that you would feel the weight of that. This is what we're called to do. As I was sitting with this woman on her deathbed, she said, I'm afraid. I'm really afraid. And I said, I know. We all fear death because we've never been there. We don't know what's coming. We've never experienced it. This is why it's so important to understand the gospel because we have one who has experienced it. We have one who has died, who was a corpse, who's been to death and has came back to live again. And that's why we, we don't have a blind faith. We put our faith in the one who defeated death on our behalf. And this is Jesus Christ. This is the power of the resurrection that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, death is not the end for you. Death is the beginning of life everlasting. And then when Christ comes back again, he resurrects our physical body and joins us with our spirit again. And we live life forever on this new heavens and new earth in perfect happiness forever. That's the story of the gospel. And that's the story I invite you. If you never believed it, I invite you into it. Believe it this morning. It's the greatest story ever told because it's the truest story ever told.
me pray. Father, there's many in this room that we have the name of Christ on our lips. We might have a fish on our car. We might have Christian on our Facebook profile. And yet it's been a long time since we've risked anything for you. We are more motivated and more consumed with the things of this world than the things, than the eternal things, the things of your son. John tells us this world has nothing to offer but the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride in our possessions. And every one of those things will be eventually taken from us. We see in this moment, everything Jesus had is taken. He's dead on a slab. And he did this for us so that we could have eternal riches, so that we could be brought near to God, so that we could know God and know ultimate happiness, and so we could make disciples and share, other people, share with other people and help them see the goodness of God and the graciousness of God. And I pray, Father, that in this moment that your grace would arrive like a bullet, that it would tear us open as we look upon the corpse of the face of the Son of God. And it wouldn't just be a momentary, oh, thank you for that, but it would be a life-altering reality that changes the direction of our life from this moment on, that we're willing to risk We're willing to enter into messy community. We're willing to be a disciple of you. We're willing to lay it all on the line like Joseph of Arimathea. May that convict our hearts and may it just remind us of the great grace and the great love of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, I thank you for this moment. I ask that your spirit would be here as we come to partake in the Lord's Supper. That your body that you gave us is bread that's broken for us. And the wine that you gave us, it's representative of your blood that was shed for us. The blood that covers all our sin. Father, let us eat in a worthy manner. Let us eat remembering. Let us eat worshiping. As the nourishment comes into our body and goes to every cell of our body, would the gospel do the same? Would would your spirit do the same? Would it come in and empower us, change the way we think, change the way we love, change the way we obey for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name we pray.